Trainer Talks and Tales acknowledges the traditional owners and custodians of the land in which we're recording this podcast, the Turrbal and Yugara people of Mianjin. We pay our respects to the elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Trainer Talks and Tales love having an array of guests with a variety of opinions. However, the views of the individuals do not necessarily reflect the perspectives of the host facilities. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a brand new episode of Trainer Talks and Tales. I am Daisy, and of course, I'm with Tess. Hi, Daisy. How are you going? I'm good, thank you. Now, Tess, it looked like your birthday celebrations continued over this week, and it looked like so much fun. Yes, classic Tess celebrating her birthday over many weeks. Um, but yeah, we went on a houseboat this weekend at Coomer at the Gold Coast, and it was awesome. So just friends and family on a houseboat, so many raptors, like looking up in the sky, just always looking at a sea eagle or a Brahmini kite, and hearing whistling kite. So that was really good. And I had such an awesome weekend. I Was it a wallaby that you were having drinks with as well? Yeah, wallabies at Tipler's Bar. So um, right up my alley, that's for sure. <laughs> but um, I actually do have a recommendation this week as well as just chat about raptors. Um, I was on Hazel McBride's uh, podcast a few weeks ago. I know that you were on Hazel's podcast uh, a couple months ago. We, of course, had Hazel on Trainer Talks and Tales, but she has her own podcast, uh, which is called No Such Word as Can't. And uh, her episode uh, that had me on it was about raptor training. So um, if you want to have that, a listen to that, I do recommend it. It was a pretty fun chat. But anyway, Daisy, uh, what about you? How are you? How was your week? Any recommendations? Yeah, it was a great episode. So definitely go have a listen. Um, my week was okay. I had a fairly scary 24 hours with my little dashhound Pippa, who had some sort of anaphylactic reaction to what I think was probably a bee or a wasp. So she had to spend a little bit of time in emergency, but thankfully she is slowly on the mend now, which is good. Yeah, that's very stressful. I feel like um, that would have been a hectic few days for you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But I did also want to chat a little bit about the statement that the ICUN put out this week. Now, if anyone's not aware, the ICUN is the International Union for Conservation of Nature. And it's probably most well known, I guess, for the red list, which indicates species around the world and their remaining numbers in the wild. Now, they do a whole lot more than just that. They're a great advocate for animals. And I'd say they're fairly highly regarded, too. Now, the statement was really quite long, but I guess in short, they stated that so many species that were on the brink of extinction are now on the road to recovery in the wild, thanks to the dedication and expertise of botanic gardens, zoos and aquariums. Now, one thing I really loved was that it was then shortly followed by a statement from the CEO of the World Association of Zoos and Aquariums, and that stated that this is a great acknowledgement of the role of progressive zoos and aquariums as key partners in species conservation. The statement further strengthening the unique role that institutions are playing and must continue to play as part of that global conservation community. I just thought it was fantastic to hear that zoos and aquariums are being acknowledged for the conservation work and how far that industry has come too. And actually, only a couple of weeks ago, I was watching a YouTube video video, and someone had put up that zoos and aquariums are now the third largest contributors to conservation in the world. And I think that's pretty damn cool. 
Yeah, that's amazing. I think it's um about time that we had a bit more recognition for the roles that zoos and aquariums play, hey? Yeah, absolutely. And there's so many amazing breeding programs that are happening all over the world. So it's great to be able to highlight those and the incredible work that a lot of zoos and aquariums are doing. Yeah, and hopefully we'll do a bit more of that on Tone Talks and Tales as well. Yes. <laughs> but anyway, speaking of conservation, our guest today, Chad, or probably more well-known as Zookeeper Chad, touches on essential breeding programs for endangered species. Yeah, Chad is currently the managing director of three different facilities here in Australia. And we do touch a little bit on an incredible story of a very special gorilla. Tess, I'm very excited for this one. So let's get into it. Chad, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. We are both really, really excited to chat with you. But before we get started into that conversation, we'd love to start every episode with the Fast Five. So are you happy if we get straight into that? Sure, go for it. Okay, question number one, primates or big cats? No. Primates. Ah, okay, AFL or NRL? Oh, that's easy, NRL. Favourite animal? Well, you're not supposed to have favourites, but it's Caius, closely followed by Margie, so gorilla by line. Okay, <laughs> and salad versus veggies? Oh, neither. <laughs> Chips every day, right? <laughs> Car- carnival. Yeah, I'll take carnival. Okay, and finally, sweet or savoury? Sweet. Nicely done. Sometimes I feel like those uh, five, five questions are actually really hard to answer so quickly. So you did well. <laughs> now, Chad, thanks again for being uh, on Training Talks and Tales. We are so excited to have you on the podcast. We'd love to hear about your pathway into the industry and how you got to be where you are now. Uh, sure. So uh, I've been doing this close to 27 years now. So I guess my pathway is a little different than what is most common now. I was pretty fortunate that I found a casual position straight out of high school after a couple of interviews. Um, and uh, that was at Featherdale. So started there and still looking after Featherdale. We didn't even have volunteers at that point, which is obviously the most, you know, the easiest inroad to the industry now. So that didn't even really exist to my knowledge at that point. Um, there was certainly still the TAFE course, but not really that same requirement on performing those volunteer hours. So that sort of came later. So I was pretty fortunate there. And yeah, within only a couple of shifts actually of doing casual, I was offered full time and yeah, haven't looked back. Yeah, awesome. And did you do any study within that time or have you just pretty much felt that you've learned everything on the job? No. So uh, when I started, there was actually a TAFE certificate, which was called zookeeping, which was, I guess, a little bit different now than most people would do captive animals three and four. And I then did those as well. Um, Did a couple of short courses on sort of primates and a few masterclasses that they used to run out of TAFE. I then also did start, I started two different degrees that sort of in animal science um but found that they were far more aimed towards animal research i guess or conservation biology which was not my want in life like i wanted zookeeping um so i didn't continue them because a lot of people were using them as entries to the industry that i was already part of yeah i'm glad you raised that point because i think 
we get asked quite a lot about whether it's worth doing degrees. And I think, you know, I learned so much more from doing my Cert 3 in captive animals or what's referred to now as exhibiting wildlife for so much more relevance on the job than during the study at a a university. Oh, 100%. I mean, there's certainly university courses internationally that you can do via correspondence that are probably a bit more tailored towards the keeping industry. But in Australia, the... I mean, knowledge is knowledge, and it's certainly valuable, but I don't think it's necessarily the pathway in. Yeah, absolutely. Now, obviously, you have achieved a ton in your career, and you're now not just the managing director at one facility, but you are at three facilities. So at Mogo Zoo, Featherdale Wildlife Park, and Hunter Valley Wildlife Park. Do you mind giving us a little bit of an insight into what duties a managing director role entails? Uh, Sure. I mean, that varies from institute to institute I'm sure and it's sort of one of those titles that I mean sounds bigger than what it probably is because I'm still fortunate enough that I can like the role can almost be what I want day to day but essentially it's the management of collections and keepers vets that look after that collection I'm pretty fortunate that you know within Australian wildlife parks which is the overarching group um we then have a ceo as well and so he and i in partnership as sort of uh senior then with the leadership team but uh the ceo is more than uh in a simple way the, the sort of revenue generation you know entry gift shops uh you know retail food and beverage that sort of stuff so i'm pretty fortunate that i don't have to busy myself too much with that that it's still essentially you know my passion which is the animal collection yeah absolutely and um we've had uh people on the podcast before say that sometimes it's hard to manage people and not so much animals so do you ever find that where it's a bit easier to work with the animals than it is with the people or is it is it okay to manage both no people are hard um (laughs) and i i think if you would talk talk to anyone in management of any industry people are the hardest because (laughs) they're people (laughs) and our industry is tough because most people are doing this job for a passion not a paycheck which is hard and you certainly want to foster within a keeper that passion and that ownership of you know the the round the species the taxon that they're looking after but still with that understanding that you are doing a job, you are very fortunate that you can clock off at some point and it becomes somebody else's problem. So it, it, it is a real balancing act. And more and more uh, what what's proving harder with, with keepers, I think, is a real almost an impatience to learn. Everyone, you know, strives for obviously beyond where they start. But there needs to be a real understanding that it, it it takes time. You know, every year that you're in, you know, an institute, you've seen everything once. You know, you've been through one spring, one breeding season, one whatever, and you have no reference to know if that was even a normal year or an abnormal year. It, it takes time. So that that would be the hard part with people. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Uh, you've got to do the time and and see the changes over the years and learn within yourself and and 
see the changes. So yeah, that's a very important thing to say. Now on those facilities that we spoke about, uh, there's some hugely successful breeding programs within them. So koalas, blackneck storks, lions, primates, but has there been a particular breeding program or species that has meant a lot to you and, and why? Uh, very early on at Featherdale, tiger quolls were a real key species for me. So largest carnivorous desiurid on the mainland. They then got taken up by a lot of institutes that were looking for sort of that analogue to devils when, when everyone really wanted to start getting into the devil program. But we were running them way before that and they were just a very interesting species to me. And at that point, uh, and probably still to this day, Featherdale's held the largest collection of them with multiple breeding enclosures. And at that point, we weren't part of Zar, and they weren't a managed species anyway. So it was the first uh, opportunity I had to run a makeshift stud book, you know, using the sort of software internally to just make those uh, collection management decisions on them and then where they would be sent. Um, so they were that was a real big one for me. And probably, again, another one at Featherdale was cassowary because it was so many years in the, in the making, you know, starting from chicks. And so, you know, you know, the seven, eight years before they're even mature and then, you know, the pairing up process, which is fraught with danger, then through to even the the egg laying, the incubation process with a tropical bird laying in Western Sydney. So there was lots there. So that, that first time we got chicks on the ground was a was a huge success and yeah, something I still think of. Yeah, I can imagine both of that would have been, you know, such an amazing experience for you to be a part of with both those species being threatened species here in Australia. It's so important that we're doing those breeding programs within zoological facilities. Yeah, because if we don't look after the Aussie stuff, it's not, you know, there's a few icons overseas that get a look in, but there's not a lot. Yeah, definitely. Now, speaking, I guess, of the non-Aussie stuff, we are really excited to chat about the incredible story of Caius, who you did mention earlier, who <laughs> is Mogo Zoo's adorable baby silverback gorilla. So congratulations yep. to you and the whole team on that because it's been an amazing process. Now, you've been obviously Thanks. extremely generous in sharing his story on social media. Caius had a slightly tougher start to life. Are you able to possibly chat about the challenges that were faced and I guess the initial few works of few weeks, sorry, of his life? Yeah. Sorry, that's the lines in the background, if you can hear that. I can we see have, them. Um, I'm like, that's so cool. Uh, can, yeah, so that's our breeding pair. They've just recently come together. So this is all very positive talk from them to the other line. We're happy um, for that yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. It could be a lot worse. It could be traffic. Yeah. Um, yeah, Kais, it, huge. Yes, uh, a long time in the planning, like all of those uh, breeding programs are that you know, are significant, like uh, lowland gorillas. It was a first-time pregnancy here at the park and to a first-time mum and dad, so obviously a lot of pre-planning, you know, involving uh, vets, keepers, curators, and even... Um, you know, human doctors in the area because obviously we share so much genetic likeness to our great ape cousins that when you start talking about potential caesareans and breech births and stuff like that, it was really invaluable to 
you know, go to doctors who sort of deal with that stuff every day. Um, the birth and everything went really well. Capenzi would have been an amazing mum. She was doing everything right, but she didn't pass her placenta, which was pick up one, number one. Then our first time dad, Kasani, decided to get involved and he took the infant from mum and kept him for 14 hours, much to everyone's huge stress. When we finally were able to get him back, we had to then do a uh, an aesthetic procedure on mum in order to remove the placenta. And after she'd recovered from that, and we tried to introduce the infant straight back. Uh, mum and grandma weren't interested in him at all, which was really surprising. Um, we sort of left it for two hours and then went back in with just intention to feed him again and then hopefully have them take him. But his whole demeanour had changed, like he's lost all his colour and was very sort of lifeless, which was a pretty scary thing to see. So rushed him up to vet block where he continued to crash and long story, it was actually a septus pneumonia. Um, probably while dad hadn't been, had him and was still chewing off his umbilicus, that was probably the entry point for the infection. And so at that point, uh, had to take on that, you know, pretty tough decision to intervene completely. Um, because it was obviously going to be a wrong, long road back from that and was going to be very difficult to then do a reintroduction straight away because obviously mum wouldn't be producing milk anymore, so on, so on. So, yeah, I had to take on that role. Yeah, wow. That's, I mean, it's stressful even hearing about it. So I can't imagine how involved that process would be. And you guys have done so well. <laughs> um, now, obviously, you mentioned you're one of the primary carers for Caius as he gradually um, navigates back to the rest of the troop what sort of developmental steps were important for him to achieve while he was in your care uh I guess in a lot of ways very early on so I was his primary keeper uh you know carer for seven months and then after that point the team then got bigger and bigger to the point now where he's basically one of the gorillas on the great ape round um, in the very early beginning, it's almost the same milestones as you see with a human baby. It's just that weight gain, um, you know, increased amount of food, but he progresses a lot quicker, obviously, than a human. You know, the ability to sit, stand, move around was much quicker. So then that obviously progressed to uh, fine motor skills and climbing and just strength, all those sort of uh, important points were really important and then the big one was then obviously socialization the separation from always around keepers to then more and more surrounded by gorillas to the point now where it's all gorillas and you know keepers on the outside and did you guys have any guidance i guess in that process because i can't imagine it's a fairly common thing for people to be involved in hand raising a gorilla did you, amongst the team, just kind of communicate and brainstorm, I guess, the best way to do it? Or did you reach out to specialists that could help you out a little bit with that? Uh, yeah, well, thankfully, being in the industry so long, you know, the, you do develop a network both nationally and internationally. So I spent quite a time over in the States uh, at quite a few institutes prior to us taking on MOGO, because obviously there were quite a few very important species in that that I was looking to 
upskill on and not in Australia because obviously at that point we hadn't purchased Mogo, so that was still not public knowledge. So I sort of went abroad for that. So there is a lot of knowledge out there because unfortunately with great apes, especially chimps and gorillas, there are a lot of mismotherings. So for various reasons, the need for intervention, whether that be short-term or long-term, there is a lot of data there. Now, there's a lot of success, but there's a lot of pretty tragic failures too. So you can learn as much from that. So no, we certainly didn't make any of the decisions in a in a silo. It wasn't just us. It's like anything with collection management, uh, you're always learning, even if you've worked with a species for 20 years, you may have only worked at one institute, so you're only an expert in that group and in that setting, so there's always stuff to learn. So, yeah, along the way with all those steps that were needed to take, uh, you know, you have that big goal at the end of getting Caius back in with gorillas, so surrogate first, and then hopefully with the rest of the family, you then just break that down into small steps which were achievable. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. And it's it's obviously been an incredible success and it's been so cool following his journey alongside um, yourself on social media. Now, obviously, recently you've made a huge step with Caius and he's now with his surrogate mum, his grandmother, Jeanne. Can you talk us uh, through? Uh, so that's, that's not his grandma. Oh, so sorry, I got that effect- wrong. No, that's right. So we affectionately call her Auntie Jeanne. Oh, so okay. Caius's mum and grandmother are together with Kasani, our silverback, and then Jeanne was separate. So Jeanne herself is basically the same age as his grandmother, um, and she was the best option for surrogate, and uh, that's what we aimed towards. And so to go back, when he first started living down in the gorilla house in the bedrooms, which was still with you know 24-hour care from a keeper, he lived in a bedroom alongside Jeanne for months. So he was living amongst the gorillas, so taking in all that, all the sights, the smells, the behaviours, the communication that was happening, and especially bonding with Jeanne as much as possible while there's still that physical barrier. And just as that progressed and he got stronger and more capable, um, you know, they, they let you know when the next step's ready. And, yeah, thankfully it's just gone so well um, and just keeps continuing. Their bond just gets better and better each day. You know, they're nesting together every night. And, yeah, it's, it's beautiful to watch. I love it. Yeah, that um, video that you posted with um, Jeanne and him, and I think your caption was like, no words needed or something like that. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> no words needed. This video is just incredible. So, yeah, I can't recommend that enough to our listeners to have a scroll through and see those videos. They're really special. Um, can you tell us what Caius is up to now in his development and what does the future look like for him? Yeah, so where he is today, so he lives with Jeanne. 24-7, but they're still off display. So they have two indoor bedrooms and an outside enclosure, which is adjacent to the exhibits that they'll go on to. Um, he's primarily on solids with still supplement bottles, which um, keepers still give him and me when I'm here. Mm-hmm. Um, but through mesh, 
mainly. So he's conditioned to come to the fence, like the, the slots where we can feed him the bottle. And that was one of the real important skills that we needed to to embed so that once he was in with Jan, because we had no idea if we'd ever be able to enter again with him, Jan could have just picked him up like a baby and never let, it in, let anyone near him. So he still has those bottles every day. Uh, next steps, uh, familiarization with his on display exhibit. The very first sessions of those will actually be back with me as opposed to GN, because if we were to sort of just open up the doors to the exhibit and have them both walk out to an unfamiliar sort of situation, we would not really be able to intervene if needed. So the first couple of familiarization sort of sessions will be me and him. Once we're sort of happy with that and the exhibit's baby-proofed, then it'll be GN and him to go onto display. Wow, that's amazing. What an incredible achievement that you and your whole team have made. And I'm so excited to follow on, you know, his story and his developmental development and see what happens because that's going to be really exciting. The The plan is then hopefully still so in our bedrooms, all of the gorillas share the same facility. So as that bond between GN and Kais improves and we really see from GN that protector type role, the ultimate goal is still then to introduce the two of them to the rest of the family. So that still is the the real spot I hope we get to. And look, at this stage, I see no reason why it's not possible, but there is a, a bit of time still before that. Yeah, for sure. And does Gian still spend social time with the rest of the troop or is she just with Caius now? Just with Caius now. Yeah. So she still, she had a period of time where she was, for various reasons, she spent over her life, like Jan's got, you know, a, a very well-stamped passport. You know, she was born in the States, has lived in uh, the UK, was at Melbourne for a time and now with us. And at various stages, she's actually spent significant periods of time by herself. She was actually hand-raised herself back 40-odd years ago. And so she still has time where she's out on exhibit by herself often when, you know, Caius is having a midday nap and things like that. So we're still very much focused on Jeanne as uh, herself and her welfare. And, I mean, she loves people watching. So just to make sure that she's still getting a bit of that time in this lead up to them going on display. Yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, like I mentioned, I'm very excited to see what happens and I'll definitely keep a close eye. Me too. <laughs> now, we did get some questions from the listeners um, from our social media. Sure. So question number one came through and it was, will there be further expansion for the organisation in the future or possibility of requiring more facilities? Uh, yes, the short answer. Um, it's all very dependent on the Institute. Like, it's not like we're looking to acquire parks to come under our banner for the sake of having more parks. They need to meet very strict sort of criteria, I suppose, from a or from multiple levels, you know, location, you know, stance on animal welfare, collection, you know, it's a very long list of sort of prerequisites before we'd look at them. But yes, definitely. Um the core belief, you know, the the motives behind what we do at Australian Wildlife Parks, I believe in wholeheartedly and, you know, to be able to expand that would be would be both a challenge but a really rewarding experience. Absolutely. 
And our final question uh, was, what's your best advice for someone hoping to progress into leadership roles within the industry? That's a good one. Uh, I guess you need to understand if what you mean by leadership. So a lot of keepers just are looking for that next step, which I understand. Uh, so depending on the institute you're at, uh, so what we have at Australian Wildlife Parks, we have keepers, lead keepers and curators. So that first step into what you'd class as leadership is a, a lead keeper role, but that's not a, a senior keeper. So it's not just that you've had a certain amount of time in the job. It's not a, a level of expertise or competence in a species or a taxon. It is actually, you know, what we started on, it's, it's more around people leadership. It's the fact that you then are going to be running a small team that then oversees multiple rounds. And the biggest challenge is, is people management. And not everyone has that in them. Like it's like any skill, anyone can develop it further. But there are born leaders and there are people that should just never lead other people. Mm -hmm. So it, it's probably very worthwhile to, if that's what you're asking, yourself you know in a progression role is do i actually want to lead people or am i just looking for a senior position where uh i just have more say over a, a tax on a round or a species and then from that curatorial is really again more people management but one of the best sort of roles within a zoo is that real collection planning you know stepping back and looking at um what's currently at the collection, what should and shouldn't be there and making those long-term decisions to improve that. And one of the best ways I think a keeper can sort of lead into that would be taking on stud books through Zar. Um, it is that access that you'll get to a, a broader network because you're having to talk with other institutions about getting um, everybody's data together to do recs each year. Um, it's that next lecture. It is your initial steps of collection planning, at least on paper, where you want animals across the region. And yeah, I, I think that's a, a wonderful step. And it, it really can help you evolve as a keeper is to take that sort of step. I think that was actually very important that you said that, that you need to reflect on what you actually want. Do you want to be a leader? Do you just want to jump up the ranks or do you just want to you know feel like you're progressing do you actually want to lead people and um have that under your belt or is that are you passionate that so yeah that's yeah. great that you said that i think that's important to think about and you may not know until you try it but if you can yeah be honest with yourself about if that's something you want to actually do because it can be one of the hardest transitions for a keeper especially if you're moving into a leadership role at the same institute is all of a sudden you're needing to direct people who used to just be colleagues and that can be challenging from both sides yeah absolutely well chad thank you so much for coming on the podcast today we are both so grateful for your time and it was amazing to hear about little Caius. and like i said we can't wait to follow along his little journey and see where he goes my pleasure thank you for the interest thank you so much
Oh, Tess, that was so amazing hearing all about Caius and the incredible gorilla family that Chad works with and such an amazing story and such impressive work from the whole team down there. Yeah, holy moly, a lot would have been involved and I can imagine the stakes were high, um, but an incredible outcome has come out of it. So great to see. Great chat too. And as always, if you're keen for another episode, we'll be back in your ears next week. Thanks, guys. See ya. See ya.